0: Peter Bogdanovich once said There are no old movies, really Only movies you have already seen And ones you haven't This week, our series of podcasts On our September-October issue Continues with Imogen Sarah Smith Discussing her essay on watching movies Of a certain age From Smith's article Quote The experience of watching movies is always changing, but fundamentals remain the same. People gaze at moving pictures on small screens the way viewers once peered into kinetoscopes or at Parlor Magic Lantern shows. Film or DCP, disc or file, it is the images themselves that can induce that sublime experience. Traveling without moving through space, being outside of time, end quote. For our conversation, Imogen and I were joined by Vulture critic Mark Harris and film comment columnist Baron Smith-Neme. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor and today I'm joined by...
1: Mark Harris from Vulture.
2: Imogen Smith. I'm a freelance writer and I guess we're discussing the piece I wrote for Film Comment today.
3: Baron Smith-Neme. I uh, blog as the self-styled siren. I also do freelance film writing for the New York Post, Film Comment, and elsewhere. Well, thank
0: you all for coming. As Imogen alluded to today we 're going to be discussing her wonderful feature for the September October issue, which is about the act of watching old movies right now it's never been a better time to see restorations either on the big screen or just at home as a file or on a you know legally acquired blu ray let's say and also you know getting into this idea that film, regardless of how you see it, regardless of what format it's on. It's still just as powerful and magnificent. However, you know, it's obviously better to see Napoleon restored on a giant screen than on a VHS, something you describe. I think it would be good to start by talking about maybe like an origin story of sorts. Where at what age did you start watching older films? What was the initial appeal to you? And then why or how did you continue doing that?
2: Well, I would say. I started watching old films before. I mean, those were the first films I saw, really. We didn't have a television when I was growing up, so I did not experience watching movies on television until somewhat later in my life. My parents used to take us to see movies at Princeton University. I don't know if it was a film club or maybe a film class. They were shown in a chemistry classroom, probably on a 16-millimeter projector. I saw a lot of Marx Brothers movies, a lot of Hitchcock we also had a friend who had a home movie projector and used to show silent comedies on the wall. So I feel like I didn't grow up with a sense that watching old movies was any different from watching new releases. That was just what movies were. I am a person who, as far back as I can remember, have always been fascinated by the past. have always been drawn to old things, whether it's books, whether it's visiting old houses, you know, I'm just a person who's drawn to the past. I think that played a part, although I very much think that is not the only reason to watch old movies and that they should be seen as art that exists, you know, that is valid as art, regardless of what you think of the time in which it was made. But for me, definitely... Just the experience of seeing earlier times in movies was always an appeal.
1: Well, I grew up in the pre-VCR era. So when I was a kid, and I think this is still true of most kids who are just getting introduced to movies, the distinction between new movie and old movie is not particularly relevant or organic to your experience when you're a very little kid of watching movies. It's all new. To you, and you don't have the cultural context to even define something as old as in something that seems foreign or some unfamiliar, because it's all foreign and unfamiliar. Every movie is new to you, and um, my impulse was to catch up. That I, I wanted to catch up with movies. I wanted to know what was in movies. And whether that was a new movie or an old movie was of no interest to in me until much later. I grew up in New York City. There was a revival house near my apartment. So uh, as I got to be an older kid, I could go to movies there. But, you know, initially, I just wanted to take movies in. And I I I think that that impulse is still very much in me I, I want to catch up and seeing old movies is as much a part of catching up and even for me as much a part of staying current with movies as seeing the latest releases is it's never been a really meaningful distinction to me I want both
3: I grew up in the 70s and the 80s and you know I was in a suburb of Birmingham, Alabama, there was no revival house culture there (laughs) at all. But there was cable TV. And old movies used to be the way they filled up their programming. They were cheap, they were plentiful, you know, they would chop them up any old how, you know, they would pan and scan them without regard to aspect ratio, you know, but Heck, I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. So I would, you know, sit down and watch Sunday morning. They have what they called Academy Award Theater. So then you might see like some of the war horses. I'm reasonably sure that's how I saw Citizen Kane for the first time. Mm -hmm. In the afternoons, they would show just, you know, like a a crazy variety, no rhyme or reason. There was no question of doing what TCM does and organizing them in these beautiful themes and stars or whatever. It was just like, ah, what the hell? You know, we're gonna throw this up here. And I, you know, through that, it it was like, it was like a rummage sale. I I was rummaging through cinematic history without knowing it. And um, just discovering what kinds of things uh, appealed to my young self, which it took years for my taste to sort of be defined. But I mean, I I loved westerns, you know. So some of it also had to do with what my parents liked, what they would recommend to me. My mother loved like the late fifties, early sixties kind of melodramas of people like Douglas Sirk and Delmer Daves, and she loved musicals and she loved comedies. And my father had kind of macho tastes. You know, he liked uh, he liked westerns. He would recommend war movies and. In retrospect, the one advantage, I think it was, is that I remember this very vividly when my father told me to watch Citizen Kane. I sat down to watch it without the slightest idea of the kind of critical reputation that it had. Right. He was like, this is a really good movie about a newspaper tycoon. I was like, great. <laughs> awesome. So at 10 years old, I thought it was a fabulous movie. Not because I was precocious, but I think specifically because nobody told me, me it was some sort of
0: big cultural mountain I was climbing yeah. here. No, I think it's funny that you bring up TCM because when that channel initially began, Ted Turner was seen as a real villain because he was colorizing all these old movies and chopping them up. But it's interesting to sort of trace what TCM does now, where there are barely any commercials, if at all. You get to see these wonderful films in, a lot of times that aren't even available or are out of print on TV for free.
3: I mean, what, what we also didn't realize at the time was how prescient he was. Oh, he, yeah. Buying the MGM and then the R- RKO libraries at, at a time when people were... I forget what he paid for it, but mm-hmm. it was... So much smaller than, than what it was worth, and he was doing this not long after all of their memorabilia right. had been dumped in landfills you know and, and he said no these are these are valuable having the the vision to see that people would want to watch them in this kind of a format was was important, so the colorization is long gone. I have a yeah. feeling it will come back eventually, but
1: <laughs> I, I will say that as I think about this new movies, new at the time, movies for me were gateways in some ways to old movies. I mean, my father would take me to movies when I was a kid, anything from Dirty Harry movies to Better Stuff. And when I was 10 or 11, I, we went to see One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Network in theaters when they opened. And I remember shortly after Network came out and I saw Network and really loved it, Sunset Boulevard was on TV. And it was a huge revelation to me that the William Holden, who was this craggy, autumnal guy in Network, was this young, handsome guy in this movie that by then looked to me as if it had been made a hundred years earlier. But it absolutely made me more interested in seeing those old movies. And Regardless of their condition, because like Farron, you know, we had this thing in New York called the 430 movie where packages of old right. movies were bought by a local station and they showed in 90 minute time slots, usually in two parts. Like there was a two parter on Monday and Tuesday, single really short movie on Wednesday, and then another two parter on Thursday and Friday. They were pan and scanned. They were edited to fit the time slot. They were edited for profane content, if there was any. The prints looked terrible... None of that mattered. It was that's the first way that I saw whatever happened to Baby Jane, and it was terrifying to me as a kid. And I was enthralled by it. God,
3: that movie scared the bejesus out of me. They <laughs> they showed it to us one afternoon before the Halloween break or whatever, and I was terrified. Really, it, like, like I, I took that I didn't movie know about dead camp seriously. or anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that, it was just <laughs> like a full-on horror movie to me. I had nightmares, you know, between part one and part two and went right back for part two um, uh, one thing I was thinking about though is a distinction that probably we all share experientially is I didn't have the opportunity to watch the same movie over and over and over and over again as a kid
2: yeah I think it it is really interesting I talk in, in the article about this the idea that we all curate our own movie watching now and much more than at any time in the past you have your choice. Obviously, the the ideal of you know any movie ever made being available to you at any time is is we're a long way away from that. But you can between you know what you can get online or rent or find at the library or whatever. You really you can get interested in a topic and go. I'm going to watch all of. So, you know, this director's movies or all of this actor's movies, we can revisit movies. And I think we all came much more from watching what there was, what, you know, what was on. And there's certainly something to be said for both because you discover things through like what you were talking about, Farron just rummaging and coming across things versus perhaps being too able to cater to our own Tastes and stay within our own realms by being able to to find rare things. Although of course that's also really valuable too. It's a whole it's a whole different way of exploring film. Something I I think is interesting too that we haven't talked about is um, I think in the days before movies were so available, the degree to which even film books were really valuable. I know even for me, and I did grow up in the era of home movies, but. I can remember certain film books making a huge impact on me just looking at the images. And I think for people especially who lived before, it was so easy to find movies. You would come across things and just see images that would strike you and want to find that film. And it would become something that kind of existed in your mind before you even saw the film itself, the, the, the Citadel Press books, the the films <laughs> of
3: Carol Lombard, the films of Betty Davis, the great romantic films or whatever. I used to love those. I would yes. seek them out, like in in old bookstores and in the uh, and in the library. And yeah, I would I would look and see movies. So even even though at, at that point later when the VCRs arrived, then it was possible, you know, to record or like watch or God the the old VCRs where you had to program the time exactly, precisely, and if the football game ran over or something, <laughs> there went the first 15 minutes of your K. Francis movie. But um, there, there are still some films that I'm trying to track down from some of the film books that
2: I have. Yeah, for me it was really this book, The Look of Buster Keaton, this French book, Le Regard de Buster Keaton, that soon after I had first seen a Buster Keaton movie, I got this book from the library and just poured over these images of him long before I had seen any of his films and the stills it was like really filtered into my brain before I had even seen a lot of these scenes but yeah I I think it it is very interesting that we've we've all had this experience of the power of movies coming through even the most inadequate presentation and I think today there's a certain level of connoisseurship where people kind of reject the imperfect experience of seeing a film and I think there's there's so much evidence for the fact that the power especially when you're young especially when you're starting out the power of film can really withstand even the most dreadful presentation yeah. in which you see it. I've been I've been watching Martin Scorsese's My Voyage to Italy about his experience of Italian cinema and he talks about seeing, you know, Paisan on this 16-inch television in the most so you know in a print so dark you can't really see what's going on half the time and how it still had this enormous you know life-changing impact on him so
1: right and now you know it breaks my heart when I hear some young cinephile say oh DCP I'm not going it's like you should see this if it's like a a grease-covered 16 millimeter print projected against like the wall of an abandoned warehouse, like you know, (laughs) which is also available in New York, right? Exactly, (laughs) you know, you have to pay more to get in, right? Um, But yeah, like what you said about not letting imperfection of format or delivery system impede your access to the actual movie, I think is really important. I I wouldn't trade the past for the present at all in terms of movie availability. Um, But I do think that if you grew up seeking things out and knowing that like this might not be on TV again, or this might be your one chance to see this on a big screen, you're kind of lastingly appreciative of the availability of anything and, and maybe a little less fine boned about the exact way you see something.
0: To sort of speak to the DCP issue, I think there's a good argument to be made that the impulse of what happens, that they're so cleaned up that they're sort of spotless, that they become something other than the film. I think that's maybe more of the... Issue. I mean, I'll give an example. Like when Film Forum had this is DCP series and they did these demonstrations and they showed a sneak of the restoration of Lawrence of Arabia and they had erased parts of the film that had been distorted because the celluloid had been melted because they were shooting in the desert, obviously. And they had gotten rid of that. And I don't know, I felt like that was a step too far. I feel like a DCP is sort of like when you go in a in a house and you just smell the cleaner. Like you're not and you're not really enjoying being in the house. <laughs>
2: Yeah, first of all, I completely agree about seeing the film is important and people shouldn't be hung up on the quality, but that's not to say it's not a wonderful experience when you do see these beautiful restorations, the care that's put into them and seeing a film in a really ideal, you know, on the big screen you know, really, you know, glistening print, that's a wonderful experience. And there's a real aesthetic pleasure that shouldn't be denied. And with DCP, I think it's it is important that there are people who care about this stuff and who care about aspect ratio and who care about all of this technical stuff, grain, and there is something to be said for people who fight the rearguard battles. And, you know, and I and I am definitely attached to film projection, partly just in a kind of conceptual way, because it's conceptually elegant in a way that to me, DCP, which I don't really understand how it works, is never going to be appealing to me in the way that the thought of the frames going past the projector and the light shining through them and the proper speed, you know, creating this illusion of the moving picture, it's such a a beautiful idea. But you kind of need to to be able to appreciate both of these things, that there's something to be said for defending the kind of Platonic ideal of the perfect cinema-going experience, which is kind of where I started in in the article, which is this is like the most sublime experience that you can have. But you don't want to, for that reason, miss things out of some kind of snobbishness about ideological purity. (laughs) uh, ideological (laughs) purity or or aesthetic snobbishness, because ultimately, it is the film itself that matters.
3: I also worry, you know, that the cinephiles like kind of coming up well behind us. I want them to still be able to deal with a film that is very imperfect. I've talked Mm. about this with archivists or whatever. There are some older movies. We're always discovering new movies that are really great and worthwhile. Some of them, however, are... Probably never going to look as as and as good maybe as maybe never DCP. did look right. that good to begin <laughs> exactly. with. I, I mean, know, right. you yeah. know,
2: sometimes films can be cleaned up to look probably, as you say, better than they ever looked at the time, and yeah, I they mean, were so never perfect. So
3: so I mean, you, you don't you don't want to have people so used to like Blu-ray quality that Absolutely. if it's less, they're like, oh, I can't watch this. Sort of a slightly different spin on the I can't watch black and white, right? right. I, I can't watch this because it's wavery, it's blurry, it's off. There's like a splice here or something. I mean, there are a number of films that are maybe never going to be good commercial prospects for full-scale mm-hmm. restoration. So what you see is what you get, mm-hmm. and when you're watching it you have to kind of condition yourself to deal with it and and not get annoyed <laughs> like yeah. listening to an old jazz record mm-hmm. you know right the, the right. pops and hisses are part of it
1: i mean there's yes there's no point in mythologizing mint condition because you know a lot of these movies played in theaters for a year and were battered to hell by the time most people saw them i mean i think when you see an old movie you are adding a layer of complexity to your experience as a spectator. It's like going from chess to 3-dimensional chess or something. <laughs> like it's it's y- when you see a new movie, it's you and the movie. When you see an old movie, it's you and the movie and at least for me, your attempt to put yourself sympathetically into the moment that movie was made, the context that movie came from, the experience that someone in your seat 20 or 40 or 80 years ago might have had. And I feel like when you watch an older movie, you you lean forward a little more because you're trying to lean into the original experience and sort of see it with two different pairs of eyes at the same time. You're watching it now. You're watching it in a way that Uh, the original viewers could not have watched it with full contextual understanding of what happened before and after the careers of everybody involved. You can place it in a way that it was not placed originally. So already your experience is different. That's, That's kind of enough, I think, for you to mediate between your experience now, what the movie was meant for, who it was meant for, how it was taken then, how you're taking it now. That's a lot to to take in without getting too hung up on questions of condition.
2: Yeah, well, I think I mean, I mean think you're getting into another really interesting area, which is the, the sort of audience experience of older movies. There is the fact that we're seeing them in very different contexts. If you go to the Museum of Modern Art and watch some Hollywood movie from the early 30s, that was not a movie that at the time would ever have been seen as belonging in a museum. And we're watching it in a really different way. And the way that you can hear and and feel the way an audience is reacting to a movie, if you're watching it with an audience, has a big effect. I mean, the sort of inappropriate laughter uh, problem Uh, that I think we've all experienced being one part of this and the sense that a lot of people, I think, do feel distanced from older movies. I mean, I feel like, I don't feel like I feel very distanced from old movies. I feel like I'm so immersed in them. I've watched so many of them. It's almost, to me, when I go to see a new movie, I feel more like I'm the person who thinks this is kind of odd, this is like not, <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> this is yeah. this is not the cinema that I am used to. Yeah, no, you that's, know, where, that's me as well I see, sometimes. Yes, <laughs> I, I, whereas I can see, when you know, when I go to see older movies, there are just certain conventions that they would use then that people are not used to, and you get this kind of reaction from the audience, and it's like...
0: And those it, practices have been disseminated in different ways at this point, like they've been s- disseminated through television, like old television, where it's like, I mean, the perfect example would be like the dream sequence, where it's the, you know, it sort of gets wavy, and uh-huh. the, how lampoon that is, and that's gone away, but people still instantly recognize it for whatever reason, or at least. I do. Maybe I'm old now. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> mean, it's, to it's me? interesting
2: <laughs> that obviously for the first decades of the existence of cinema, I think what they're watching older movies was something. I mean, I you know, I think they would occasionally be revived, but there was no real culture of watching old movies. There really was an assumption that a movie was made, it would play for you know a week or a few weeks, and it was gone. You know, and it wasn't seen as obviously many movies literally were just. Junked. But when people first started to have this kind of retrospective sense of going back to movies, some of it initially, like in the 40s, was simply about laughing at, at old movies and they would t- actually take silent movies and tack on these really cheesy voiceovers that would kind of make fun of the movie. And it was just like, you know, trying to squeeze a little more. There was one guy in particular
3: who made like a career out yes, of that. Yes, I I, I've seen his some, of, some I've, of these. I've, they would I've take an old too. Western or something. They're, it's
2: really <laughs> painful, but it's interesting that obviously that impulse of seeing anything that's even, you know, 10 years old as being quaint and funny and nothing we can take seriously now has been it's not just us now. This has been going on for a long time and it was only after that that people started watching movies probably who hadn't seen them. People who were young in the 50s discovering silent movies, who hadn't grown up watching them, who started to see, you know, know, these these are great works of art.
1: I think I'm slightly more forgiving of laughter at these movies than maybe I used to be, and then, then maybe you are. Like, I think you're, we're talking about two different kinds of things. Laughing at cliches, because, you know, there were so many movies made every year in the 30s and 40s that, of course, things got repeated, and things got, you know, familiar through overuse, and and uh, a lot of things in lesser movies from that time are just things that were put in movies because that is how it was done 50 times before. So I understand that kind of laughter. I think the laughter we're talking about, though, is more sort of derisive laughter that exists to, to reassure yourself when you're faced with something unfamiliar. And yes. And so, yes, if there's too much of that, that can absolutely take out your experience of a movie.
2: Well, I think what the kind that, that bothers me most, and I agree that there's a lot of different kinds and there's moments when it's harmless or even appropriate, but... What The kind that bothers me most, I think, is the fact that anything that is perceived as being at all melodramatic, you know, a moment of kind of emotional intensity. And you, you, Farron, had a wonderful quote from Truffaut that you quoted in something that you wrote recently about people are have lost the habit of intensity.
3: Yeah. He was talking about sudden
2: fear, and he yes. was
3: talking about it like within a year or two of its release when it was released in, in France. So, I mean, that... Joan Crawford is so intense in that movie, but it's fabulous, you know? uh, But I think, like, even then, people were kind of like,
2: whoa.
3: (laughs) Which
1: is not an unreasonable reaction to Joan Crawford. I mean, she she does act in a way that makes you sometimes want to take a couple of steps back. Oh, yeah. Um,
3: Yeah, as I was writing, it's it's part of the the appeal for me and it it was for Truffaut as well but actually I taught I did not make it to Film Forum to to see it which I I regret but I talked to Sheila O'Malley and a couple of other people who did and they said the audience this time was completely into it in her screening
2: they were like just
3: with it every step of the way so
2: that really is what it is it's that you want I mean, obviously. Not all movies are good, not all movies are worth giving yourself to. But what you really want with the experience to me of seeing a movie is that feeling of just surrendering to it, being drawn into it. Whether you're laughing or you're crying or you're serious or whatever, it's it's being with the movie. And the kind of laughter that bothers me is where I feel like people are just sitting back and they're it's this distanced thing, and they're, as you say, they're reassuring themselves that they kind of Get the joke about this, and that that they're not able to enter the world of a movie. And that is when it's really distracting and and just seems unfortunate. And I think that I don't know. I don't know whether m- people watch movies differently now than they ever did. There probably always were people who watched, who laughed at melodramatic moments oh, yeah. in movies. I'm sure there were. Yeah, I mean, yeah, ner-
3: nervous laughter. I mean, probably yes. the worst experience I ever had in that regard was a, an, an audience that just absolutely chuckled all the way through Rocco and his brothers. Yeah. <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> it's just, I mean, there is just nothing funny about that movie. No. But... Uh, but for every experience I've had like that, though, I, there there have been others where I've I've gone to to see an older movie and just had the audience like with it the whole time. Yeah, you and know? that's um, a wonderful
2: experience. I mean, I remember seeing I Want to Live at Film Forum, the uh, Susan Hayward <laughs> capital punishment movie, and it ended and like people just sat there and you could hear a pin drop and they just no one moved. For, you know, this long moment after the movie ended and that was that That's was perfect wonderful. too if you remember Absol- the last Absolutely, shot of the which movie. we should not <laughs> so spoil for anyone good, who hasn't yeah, seen right, it. But so.
1: the experience I've had with a movie that I think taught me the most about this was with The Best Years of Our Lives, which is a movie that I wrote about a lot in my last book, which was about partly about William Wyler. The first time I saw The Best Years of Our Lives was in a film class in college in the early 80s. And the class was taught by Annette Insdorf. And she later told me it was the only movie she showed in that class where she actually had to scold students for laughing through it. And there was a lot of laughter in it. I saw it a couple of years ago with a more middle-aged audience and the audience was wrapped laughing at the right moments because there is funny stuff in that movie, crying at the right moments. I mean, I think it's two things. One is that is a movie you have to grow into you you don't understand when you're 19 the the sacrifices of those particular characters necessarily <laughs> An i
3: and loved i are by that, by that, so okay. loved 19. it, as you, you can love it at, we we'll, we'll grant that we're a little that we're outliers <laughs> but but
1: but, uh, but the other thing i wanted to say was that in 1983 or whenever i saw it then-contemporary audiences' relationship to the idea of World War II and war in general was really different. We were still fairly fresh off of the Vietnam years, and part of that teenage audience that I was in, part of their reaction was an instinctive rearing back at the idea of anything that might celebrate military service and look at war uncritically, because that was the moment we were in. So... Now we have sort of 35 more years of understanding of war, of the experience of veterans, of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, in our systems. So I guess I just wanted to make the point that our relationship to a particular old movie is not fixed. We are also slaves to the moment we see it, just as it is a product of the moment it was made. And we're, we're slaves to the moment that we see it in terms of how old we are and what our experience Absolutely. is, but also in terms of what our era is.
3: Maybe also in terms of like how, how much we've seen before, too. Yeah. You know, I mean, there, yes. there's a there's a certain self-selection that goes on in, in some revival houses. You know, where if you're at the San Francisco silent movie festival, <laughs> presumably you know exactly what you're getting. You're not <laughs> you're not you're not there to snicker and like gobble raisinettes. You're there to commune with silent cinema. So
1: one thing I was thinking, this is sort of the opposite of silent movies though. As I was coming over here this morning, I I realized that people who were not born when Fargo or Jerry Maguire opened, can vote in this year's presidential election. <laughs> and and so I feel like it's sort of, just as it's incumbent upon them to open their minds and their experience if they really do love movies to older movies, it's incumbent upon us to realize that the the definition of what an old movie is, is constantly rolling. And I do think it's fair to say for people, if it came out before you were born, yes, you're allowed to call it an old movie. And that's a jolt for those of us who don't see some of these movies as that old. But it's also an area where, you know, we we haven't really begun to understand how a younger generation of moviegoers is going to see movies from the 80s and the 90s as old movies. Like, we don't know how they're going to contextualize that as an era. Because to us, we took those movies in uh, for the first time when they were new. And I I, I think if you see a movie that way, we we all have our kind of year dividing line, I guess, as to what the line between old movies and and current movies is. But it's only our line, and it's not remotely the same line as it is for younger moviegoers. So I always wonder about how that will...
3: So I, if if my line is 1965, what am I going to call them now that like Jerry Maguire <laughs> is an old movie? Am am I a really old movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I
2: then, I touched on this and the with the idea of nostalgia, which is something that I think we might want to talk about as something that's a, a charge that's kind of lobbed against the watching of old movies that there's something nostalgic about it, and you know I think it is. Questionable whether you can really call it nostalgic to watch something from the 1920s. I mean, right. you know, right. or a time, that you, not, a time that you didn't live through, you know, is that an even a, an appropriate use of the word? Right. But when you're talking about movies that you were, I was a child in the 80s, I mean, I personally feel no nostalgia for that time <laughs> period, but that's just me. I, I, I wasn't, I was kind of out of step with it then, and I still feel the same way now but I think we are seeing this kind of wave of 80s nostalgia right now as you say that the difference between a movie that people have this kind of fondness for because they remember it as something they saw as kids is is something that a younger generation isn't going to have that experience of and I think we kind of see this also you know when you when you go to MoMA and you watch a movie from the 40s and there are a lot of elderly people in the audience and they kind of have the memory of this being the films that they saw, you know. So every generation has a different cutoff, as you say.
1: I mean, to me, if your movie diet is primarily sequels and movies featuring characters that you're already familiar with, or characters from comic books that you read as a child or cartoon characters, that means you are primarily a nostalgic moviegoer. If you go see old movies, you are yeah. not. Yeah. You are, you're doing the opposite of it. You're continuing your film education. You're pushing yourself into realms that you don't know and haven't seen before. Oh,
2: I, I, I completely agree. And I really wanted to make that argument in the piece that I wrote Watching old movies is exposing yourself to the unfamiliar, as you say. It's a different voyage. It's it's a
3: voyage in a different direction.
0: Yeah.
2: And I mean, we've kind of been talking a lot about old Hollywood movies now, but... There are, there are vast realms of classic cinema that are much less familiar, too. You know, like when all this sort of excitement there was about the Argentine film noir last year, you know, and it's like, we've ne- we have never got, you know, these are films that never even played in the United States when they came out. I just completely agree with you, Mark, that, you know, whether it's an old or a new movie, it's new to you. And old movies and foreign movies often are the most unfamiliar and exciting and and you're discovering new things. And so the sense that that people, that is sometimes kind of an unspoken assumption that watching old movies is somehow like sinking into this cozy, nostalgic, predictable sort of realm is something that I think we want to counter.
1: Yeah. I don't think nostalgia is evil, by the way. Like, I think it's perfectly okay (laughs) to revisit something that you love.
2: Neither do I. Um, And I think... I also think the word nostalgia is interesting, and I say this in in the article that it's become a word that's always used to mean this kind of fond, uh, you know, comfortable, happy recollection of the past. But I mean, the root of the word in Greek is homecoming and pain. You know when i when I started out talking about having been drawn to the past, I think there's there's a a, a sense of loss when you think about the past. The past is gone. Whether it's your own past, whether it's the past from before you were born, it's vanished. And film is one of the, the ways in which you can kind of recover an experience of it. And to me, movie watching always has a large aspect of this kind of experience of longing and of, of something that you can you can have, you can experience, and yet that is always sort of out of reach.
1: Yeah, I love that view of it. I think that's, that's really right. Nostalgia is never not... Not with always. Sadness. Yes, it's not
2: a it's That's not a comfortable true, yeah. feeling always.
3: I also don't think, and I've I've never thought that having a strong or even a primary taste for for older cinema n- means that you are necessarily shut off from what's going on in yeah. in the here and now. In fact, to me, if a filmmaker is any good at all, she or he usually knows. This the older stuff too, right? Just like a right. composer would know their old masters, right? So, it, I mean, I find that my old movie taste in, enriches most movies that I go mm-hmm. to see. It doesn't make me say, "Oh, you know, gosh, you know, there's no three-point lighting." The hell with this, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so. But you kind of also have to. I think if you love old movies, you have to. Decide that it's a lifelong journey and education. I mean, I, I love Criterion and I love that um, younger cinephiles are working their way through those movies. But I think this, it, it can really lead to this sort of idea that I saw the canon, so I'm done.
3: Yeah, no, and, absolutely not. you know, not. you're yeah.
1: never done. Yeah. And yeah. if you think you've seen the canon give me five minutes with you and you know i will show you a world of movies that you haven't seen
0: or don't limit yourself to a canon don't view things as only things worth seeing and every and things not worth seeing because there's value in even a not good movie like bad movies help me understand good movies so much better just terrible action films if i hadn't seen something like three days to kill i couldn't have appreciated mad max fury road as much like it's just like these little things that it's all relevant it's all sort of research it's all if if you are willing to approach art that way
2: well and it's particularly interesting with old movies because of course there is a sense when you look at the past that that you know the cream rises to the top and that we watch only the movies that are now recognized as being those classics and of course we know that a vast majority of movies that came out have always been something below that you know another really interesting event that I went to not that long after I went to the San Francisco Silent Film Festival is this thing called Mostly Lost, which happens at the Library of Congress, and which I'm going to be writing a feature on for Criterion. And this is an event where they show unidentified old movies, primarily silent movies. They come from the archive of the Library of Congress and other film archives that have just cans of films that, know, you know, they don't know what it is. And sometimes it's fragments and sometimes, you know, a lot of it's very, very early stuff from, you know, even before the the teens from like the turn of the 20th century. But so they get together a group of people who include some people who have incredible encyclopedic knowledge and they show these movies. And it's the one place where you are supposed to talk during the movie and people call out whatever they can recognize and people can recognize certain actors or they can recognize where something was shot. You sort of piece together this information and and they're able to actually come up with identifications for a lot of these films. But anyway, one of the things that's interesting about this event is that talk about rummage sale. I mean, you're (laughs) really just like (laughs) scooping out a bunch of selling, I mean, they, they've digitized all of these, but you're scooping out a bunch of, of old films with absolutely no attention to what the content is or what the value is. And you're like getting this, it's like just this cross section of this is what they were actually producing. And the attitude of the people who attend that particular event is very much we have to save everything and we have to save things because this is the actual history. And, you know, there was, there's a man, they, there are also people come and do talks, presentations at this, and there's a man who's been working on restoring this early sound serial called King of the Congo, with, which Boris Karloff is in. And it's, you know, this jungle adventure kind of, kind of thing, you know, with lots of people in gorilla suits and, you know... <laughs> And no one would mistake this for great cinema, and yet when you watch it, you realize, like, you know, this is what Indiana Jones is referencing, and this is what, you know, when I grew up seeing a lot of movies in the 80s like that, I didn't have the context to know that they're actually based on older movies, so there, or what there's was being taken, what was being taken, what was being—you know—I didn't certainly didn't know when I saw Star Wars as a child that it's like he's taking from Kurosawa and he's yeah. taking the value of seeing, as you say, Violet. The value of seeing not the canon, not the great things, is that you see what were great directors seeing, what was actually. What's the total landscape of what was being made?
1: Well, along these lines, I have a question for both of you, since you are such avid old movie watchers. Is it ever okay for someone to see an old movie and have their primary feeling be, that was bad? Like,
3: (laughs) that is a really bad (laughs) movie. Of course (laughs) it is. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I I can... come up with a, a few <laughs> so, uh, more, more than a few actually i mean there there really are like some pretty i mean i i've got, i've gotten to the point where i can find a certain kind of value in a lot of movies even even bad ones but that doesn't mean that you know as a somebody with a critical mind i don't look at it and say overall this is bad <laughs> so. yeah i think
2: part of you know when you, when you certainly when you look at old Hollywood studio era movies very rarely are they really badly made in the sense of badly crafted there's kind of like a level of craftsmanship that is always there and I think so but that doesn't mean they don't have just unsuccessful scripts or bad performances or whatever and I think we've all had the experience of watching a movie and it's like I love this director, I love these actors from an era that I love. How could this be bad? But if, you know, if the script doesn't work, it can just be really unsatisfying, and you can certainly...
1: I feel like if the ghosts of the men who shot B-Westerns in eight days were here listening to us, they would say, of course they were bad. What are you even talking about them for in an arts institution? But...
2: (laughs)
3: Well, well, I mean, I just I just wrote something about Tim Holt or the film comment online thing. And he he did, you know, people who talked to him and knew him said that he and his father, Jack Holt, who was also in a lot of Westerns, they they cared about making them quality, but they knew that like there was a certain level when I was Starting to dig up some of his B-Westerns, the film historian Ed Hulse, who I was talking to, he's like, well, you know, don't go in there expecting stagecoach, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They they were made with limitations. Within those limitations, they can still be quite good. I've seen a few B-Westerns that had the occasional breathtaking shot, you know, a a great stunt. But a a great stunt doesn't mean it's a great movie.
1: (laughs) Right, and a bad movie, of course, can also shed light on something. Whether it's, as you said, the influence of a better later movie, or
2: right, but certainly to hesitate to to just say an old movie is bad really sets a, a terrible precedent. In a sense, you know, things do not become hallowed by time necessarily as art. I mean, I agree we should save everything. I agree there's something to be learned from you know even bad movies, but. You still have to judge them as you would judge any movie. Right. Otherwise, I mean... That kind of gives ammunition to the idea that somehow those of us who love old movies are just sort of like...
1: Sentimental. Sentimental.
2: We're sentimentalizing these things because they're old.
3: Yeah, we're nostalgic. Oh, look, they are the padded shoulders. Everyone's wearing a hat, you know.
1: (laughs) But we're fighting so hard against uh, people who think something is unworthy simply because it's old that it's... There can
2: be a tendency to swing to the opposite extreme. Sometimes things are lost for a reason. It's okay. Well, <laughs> it's and real, it's actually, a- I, w- I was thinking about this earlier when we were talking about print quality and the irony that the better a movie is, or at least the more popular it was, probably the worse it looks because, mm. you know, films would get, right. as you say, they would get battered. When a film turns up and it is just pristine. It's often for a reason. It's because no one, you know, this was watched once and no one ever wanted to play it again. And so it looks stunning. And it's like, yeah, this, you know, was not really worth taking out of the film (laughs) can. So,
0: Before we close, as we always do, could we each go around quickly and say a film that we saw recently that we liked? So I saw Barry Jenkins' Moonlight, which I know has been mentioned on the podcast before. is something someone has seen recently and really liked. I saw it at Toronto, and it was just really fantastic. Every nice thing that you could possibly say about this movie is true. And if someone wants to sort of fight me on that, I think they're just being a contrarian. It's just really wonderfully acted, wonderfully scripted, wonderfully shot. The music is great. It's a very thoughtful film, so
3: go see it. I guess the best movie I've seen recently was Elle. I want to say Paul Verhoeven's L, but in my mind it's really more Isabelle Huppert's yes. L. <laughs> yeah. She's so much the centerpiece of the movie and her splendidness of, as an actress that it's, it's hard for me to imagine it would have been anything other than disastrous without someone that good in it.
2: But uh, yeah, I, I really liked it a lot. Well, I would like to take this moment just to plug... Anthology Film Archives series about women film directors yes. before 1950. One of the most recent films that I saw was there. It was called Broadway Love by a woman named Ida Mae Park from 1918. And it was really beautifully directed, beautifully shot and acted. But there are a lot of really interesting films in that series, which is still going on for another week or two. And these are things that are truly hard to see. They're they're from all over the world. There are some from Scandinavia. There are some from Mexico. And people should really be going and checking out these movies.
1: I think I'm going to go in a non-festival direction and pick Hell or High Water, just Mm -hmm. as a reminder that good movies can come from anywhere, not just the sort of end-of-year prestige or art house circuit. It's a movie about two brothers who are bank robbers um, that's set against the mortgage crisis and and the banking crisis. It stars Chris Pine and Ben Foster and Jeff Bridges as a sheriff. And it's just the kind of Hollywood movie that I really love in that everything about it that could be ordinary is elevated by just superb execution, a much better... Better than average script by Taylor Sheridan who wrote Sicario that that is really attentive to detail. beautiful lived in, honest performances, including by any number of actresses who have just one scene. Great cinematography, an ending that reminded me of uh, George Stevens, which is maybe uh, you know <laughs> a, a, a way to remind people that that yes, when when you see a new movie that seems to understand the vocabulary, and history of what came before it, it's really exciting. So that would be my recommendation.
0: Well, thank you all for coming. This was wonderful. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Repold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.